All right, how are we? Good to see you. Summit PM, this is the true Summit PM now. The time change happens and it feels like Summit after dark, so I'm ready to do this thing. <laughs> Hope you're ready to do this thing too. You ready? All right. Uh, my name's Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. Forgot to mention that. Good to see you all. Um, so if you were not here last week, you were pr- maybe, hopefully, a little bit overwhelmed by the, uh, the quality of the technological innovation that happened here, a new screen, lights, all that sort of stuff. And um, one of the questions I got over the past week a good bit was, um, so what part of this did you do of the renovation? Because it was a lot of work. You know, it was like uh, well over 100 hours of, of just incredibly technical work. So people were asking me, uh, what part is it that you did? So I want to answer that question. It's a great question to ask. You see that projector right there? There's a cord that runs out of that projector and it runs up to the ceiling and it hits the ceiling and it runs to that beam and it runs to that beam across that beam all the way over there, all the way down the beam, all the way across the wall to the sound booth right back there. I helped run that cord. Very impressive, I know. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yes, yes, I appreciate that. Um, now, when I say ran the cord, here's what happens, is um, Justin Almas, one of our other pastors, was on a scissor lift right about right there, and I was standing right about right here just trying to help however I could, and he said, hey, uh, Brian, hop on real quick, and I'm like, okay, what? Sure, uh, okay, and I'm on the scissor lift, and before I know it, our heads are almost on the ceiling. Now, uh, two things you need to know about me. One, um, I am technically and technologically completely ignorant. I am one of the least handy people you will ever meet in your entire life. That's not false humility. That is the truth, unfortunately. Secondly, um, I hate heights. I really do. That's not an exaggeration. I really don't do well with heights whatsoever. And so I got up there on this tiny little scissor lift, and it's wobbling back and forth. I think Justin was doing that on purpose. And, um, you know, I'm just kind of like staring off into the distance like this, like this is how I die, with two hands on the railing going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. In fact, my one job in running the cord was to make sure that the cord uh, stayed neatly uh, wound and didn't get dropped and jumbled. Uh, I did not do my one job. I was actually so overwhelmed by the heights, I dropped it. Justin's like, you had one job. And I'm like, I know, I'm sorry. And uh, pretty soon, I think Justin recognized uh, this was both inefficient and I was a tremendous liability up there and we were pretty much back on the ground and he was giving me responsibilities like hold the tape measure, go get me a cupcake, things like that. Uh, that, that was what last Monday uh, er, consisted of. Uh, and, and the logical question to ask, of course, is how in the world do I get to reap uh, all the benefits of this very amazing technological renovation while having no skills or abilities to do any sort of technological renovation? And uh, here's how. I know a guy. Uh, or I know a couple of guys like Justin and Andy, two of our pastors who are very sacrificial, very gifted, uh, very technically and technologically proficient, and they pretty much did this, and I basically contributed nothing whatsoever other than inefficiency and incompetency. And that's really how uh, uh, knowing a guy works, isn't it? There's this element of there's us, and there's something that we want, and we recognize our inability to get that thing that we want, and so we hope there's somebody to go in between, there, an intermediary, uh, uh, somebody to sort of stand in the gap, and even if we can't get that thing, at least maybe the access to them will get that thing uh, for us. In Denver, this happens a lot, uh, particularly in two very uh, popular ways. The first is with Broncos tickets, um, which I know we're struggling, okay? But still, there's a waiting, season, uh, a waiting list for season tickets still, like a decade long. I'm still on it. I got on it as soon as I moved here seven years ago, and I'm still not even close. I'm in like the 10,000s on this waiting list. And so how does anybody get to go to Broncos games? Well, you know a guy, right? You, everybody kind of desires to work in that office where the boss has been in Denver for multiple generations.
generations and is so wealthy he has season tickets, but also doesn't like going to many games. He only likes going to two games a year, and he loves the tickets just being used, and hopefully you can be the one who gets to use those tickets. And if you ever go to a Broncos game, a lot of times if you talk to the people in your section, how did they end up there? Um, the majority of people are like, oh, I know a guy. You know, I just know a guy, and I was able to go as well. The other place in Denver, I see this even more uh, frequently, is everybody in Denver wants to know a guy who uh, has like a mountain house. Uh, because for us in Denver, you know, for us in Denver, uh, you know, it's very expensive, right? So it's very expensive for us to own one home, let alone a second home in the mountains. Uh, but everybody kind of wants to have a rich uncle, right, who owns a, a home in Breckenridge, but is traveling all over the world, you know, wheeling and dealing, whatever extra extravagantly wealthy people do. And he wants his Breckenridge home to be used. And you are his nephew. You are his niece. We would love for you to use it. And you can just go up in Breckenridge and stay uh, as long as you want, whenever you want. I mean, that's the Denver dream, isn't it? That's the Denver dream is to know that person, uh, the know, to know a guy. That's how knowing a guy works. There's something that you want. You can't have it yourself, but hopefully there's an intermediary in between to help you get access uh, to whatever that thing is. And that, that's really the line of reasoning we're going to be looking at as we look through the next part of Exodus uh, in Exodus 28 and 29. We're looking at the establishment of the priesthood. Last week, we looked at the establishment of the tabernacle, which was this temporary meeting place where a holy God and unholy people could come and meet with one another in spite of the radical disparity between those two entities. This week, what we're going to see are the, are the guys who oversee uh, the tabernacle. That is the priest. The priests are the, kind of the guys to know if you want to know God. Uh, in fact, uh, one Bible dictionary I read gave this definition of their job, of their job description. Uh, they said the priests served as intermediaries between the people and God. At the heart of Israelite religion was a relationship with God. To be an Israelite or a Jew was to know and maintain a continuous relationship with the living God. These were the guys that basically were overseeing and uh, kind of executing to ensure this relationship uh, endured. And so we're going to look at this next part of Exodus. I'm really excited. I know maybe initially, if we're just honest, you hear like, hey, we're going to describe the priesthood. And some of you are like, okay. Um, you know, you don't feel like, man, that's really going to help me tomorrow. Um, and I hope one, I mean, one, there's just a value in understanding the rich kind of story of the biblical narrative. But I think two, if you stick with us to the end, what you're going to see is uh, there's incredibly relevant implications for whatever you got going on uh, this week. Uh, as well. And so I'm excited to dive into this with you. Uh, let me give this as a kind of a visual overview too before we dive in so we don't get lost in the weeds. Um, I want you to think of an hourglass, okay? Boop, boop, hourglass, right? And I want you to flip that hourglass boop, boop, on its side. So boop, boop, that makes sense? Everybody tracking with me so far? I know, very complex stuff tonight. Um, when we think about Old Testament concepts that are introduced, like the tabernacle that we looked at last week, like the priesthood that we'll look at tonight, um, the way kind of they flow, and this is really the structure of the entire sermon, is they start as very wide promises in the biblical narrative, and they narrow down as the Old Testament continues until the New Testament starts, and it finds its culmination and climax and clarity in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and then those promises spread back out. Uh, so it's an hourglass on its side. Now, hopefully that'll make more sense at the end, but it, again, that's what we're going to be doing in our time is starting to see how the promise of the priesthood starts very wide, it narrows down into Jesus, and it goes back out wide to the people of God again. So let's start very wide with the concept of a kingdom of 
priests. Now, what's interesting is it's before Exodus 28, actually well before Exodus 28, the concept of the priesthood is actually introduced by God. Actually, all the way back in Exodus chapter 19, uh, God tells Israel something very, very interesting. He says this in Exodus 19, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Look at verse 6. This is what to focus in on. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, when that idea is introduced in Exodus 19.6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, two particular things should jump off the page to you. The first is the amazing power of God's uh, restoration work. The amazing power of God's restoration work, because again, remember the context in which God says this, is just a few chapters prior. Uh, Israel is nothing close to being a kingdom of priests. They're not close to being a kingdom of like blue-collar workers. They are a nation of slaves. They're a nation of slaves. And God has liberated them, but what's so astounding is God not only liberates them, but draws near to them and tells them, my vision for you as a people, my vision for you as recovering slaves, is not merely that you would be freed as significant and as sacred as that is, but that you would be used, that you would be transformed, that your stories might be leveraged for the sake of the advancement of my fame and glory to the very ends of the earth. You know, what's so amazing about this is if you've ever gone through any sort of trauma or suffering to any degree, you know, instinctually when you go through that, it's hard to envision a future much better than, like, survival, isn't it? Like, I just want to survive. I just want to live. If I could just go from thinking about this all the time and not sleeping to, like, only having nightmares once a week about this thing, that would be amazing. And what I'm not trying to do to any degree is to downplay the difficulty of what I know so many of, you, many of you have walked through. But at the same time, what I would have you see is the implication of this, how God's vision for your life is often better than your own vision for your life. And for you who are suffering, your vision for the future should be more than just recovery. And I'm not saying that's easy, and I'm not saying that's insignificant, but something more than that, but instead to be transformed and used for the glory of God. God is the God who is in the business of taking a nation of slaves and transforming them into a kingdom of priests. And that was inconceivable to anybody who would have heard that. Secondly, which will jump off the page to you, is that this isn't what happened, right? Because they go from very quickly being a kingdom of priests to being a kingdom with priests. Now, what happens? Did God kind of change his mind or what went down? What happens in between Exodus 19 and 28 is something really, really interesting where they try the whole kingdom of priests thing, right? You think about this very intimate relationship with God. They talk to God and God talks to them. And actually, immediately following Exodus 19 is Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are given. And God speaks the Ten Commandments, this very relational type of way of communicating to them, right? He talks to them and the people aren't like, man, this is amazing, a relationship with God. We feel so good. This is so overwhelming. We're so happy. High five. Uh, actually no they're freaked out they think they're going to die and they actually tell Moses don't let God talk to us anymore because we're going to die you talk to him what that's not a very nice plan but still that's what they offer to Moses he's going to kill us if he keeps talking to us so you talk to him Moses and what it shows is the people have this collective awareness that we can't be a kingdom of priests. We can't have that type of relationship. We actually need a go-between. That's what they're actually saying there. We need an intermediary. We need somebody to go before us to sort of intercede between ourselves and God because we confess the radical disparity between his holiness and greatness and glory and grandeur and how we are none of those things. 
And if we enter into his presence for a relationship, he is going to consume us and we are going to die. Moses, you go. And they're actually asking for this. They're actually asking, like, we don't want to be a kingdom of priests. We want to be a kingdom with priests. So God uh, basically uh, says, okay. You know, he, it's not that so much that he changes the destination and the grand scope of the biblical narrative, but he does kind of reroute the, des- reroute the way they get to the destination. It's kind of like, you know, if you live downtown and you're coming back from the airport and because of the population of boom of Denver over the past decade or so, uh, 70 is just the worst, right? Like, it doesn't matter what time you're on it. 70 is absolutely the worst. And so your GPS app, a lot of times you use Waze or whatever it might be, a lot of times will reroute you. It's not taking you to a different destination. It's just sort of taking you a, a different way to get there. In the same way, God doesn't change his vision for his people that they might become a kingdom of priests. He just changes a bit of the kind of the route in order to arrive at that particular destination. So he goes from being a kingdom of priests, very wide, to a kingdom with priests. And it starts narrowing down. Now look with this, me, then in Exodus chapter 28, starting in verse 1. The text says, then bring uh, near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. So uh, Moses's brother, Aaron, uh, it's his lineage that becomes the priest uh, for Israel, and they become the distinct group of guys within the tribe uh, to execute uh, these uh, particular responsibilities. Now, kind of what were the responsibilities that were given to the priest? Uh, in order to kind of wrap our mind around the job description of the priest, I want to bring it into kind of modern day, and then we'll go back several thousand years. So um, basically, the job of the priest was to give the people access into the most exclusive, prestigious, uh, significant room in the universe, presence in the glory of God. Now think about this in modern day context. Um, if you've ever been in a very kind of exclusive club or exclusive room, you know there's kind of certain ways uh, that you, know, you get in there. And, and I was thinking about two uh, in particular. Uh, well actually what this made me think of, and I don't know if this is a, you know, there's not the best cultural connotations with this, but I was thinking about like a country club um, actually, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and I grew up 15 minutes away from the Country Club of Virginia. Doesn't that just sound important? The Country Club of Virginia, the people who were members there, you know what they called it? The club. Because what else would you call it other than the club? And everybody would know what they were talking about when they would talk about the club. And my family uh, did not have a membership to the club, but we had friends who had membership to the club. And I can still remember being in middle school and having this great privilege to go to the club for the very first time in my life. There were a couple things that I recognized were essential to get into the room of the club to go have dinner there. The first was you had to dress like you belong. Uh, You had to dress like you belong. I didn't realize this, but the club had a very exclusive dress code. And when you went to go have dinner there, you were supposed to be dressed up. And so I can remember me and my friend uh, and his parents getting ready to go to the club for dinner. And uh, my friend's mom said to me, "Uh, where's your jacket? And I looked at my uh, Virginia Tech starter jacket. Does anybody remember starter jackets? Yeah, I I rocked one of those uh, like really hard. Um, And I was like, it's on me. Um, and, and my friend's mom was like, no, like, where's your dinner jacket? And I was like, what's a dinner jacket? It's like, what in the world is that? She's like, no, you need a blazer because, you know, apparently you just can't go in dressed like a hillbilly. You have to be wearing a blazer to be in having dinner in the club as well. So I, I had to borrow one of my friends. The second thing that I recognized is you not only had to dress like you belong, but you also had to pay the price of admission. In fact, the club was actually so exclusive, you not only paid to have dinner there, but you paid dues in order to have the privilege to pay dinner, uh, pay for dinner at the club. Now, of course, as a middle school boy, I did not have a uh, sustainable kind of uh, 
flow of income in order to pay for dues in order to go and have dinner at the club. But fortunately, my, my friend's parents were willing to very graciously pay the visitor fee and uh, to let me have dinner in this place as well. So that's kind of how it works, right? If you're going to any sort of exclusive place, you have to dress like you belong. You also have to pay uh, the cost of admission. And that's really what Exodus 28 and 29 is all about. About the priests are supposed to dress like they belong and also pay the price of admission in order to enter into the most exclusive, prestigious, desirous place to be in the entirety of the universe, the holy of holies, the epicenter of the presence of God on earth. Now let's start with the dress. We see they had they, the priestly clothes. They had to dress like they belong. If you start in Exodus 28, now verse 2, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Now, what's interesting is the remainder of Exodus 28 is basically a description for how these guys are supposed to be dressed. Very extravagant, very intricate, very, very detailed. But verse 2 keeps us from getting lost in the weeds and tells us, here's the purpose why these guys were supposed to dress this way. They're supposed to dress this way for glory and for beauty. I actually have a picture of what these guys would have looked like. So if you follow, uh, I thought about wearing this uh, because I know Halloween was this week. And um, I thought it, it would really make a statement, and you guys would pay a lot better attention. Um, but I guess uh, Amazon now did not have that on uh, like one hour shipping. So uh, you'll just have to look at this picture of this here as well. So if you followed Exodus 28 to a T, this is what you would dress like. And uh, there's a lot we could talk about, but I want to tell you about three uh, particular aspects of this. Uh, first, we're going to start with this right here, this breast piece right here that's all blinged out. You see all those jewels right there? Yeah, right there. Okay, what that comes from is Exodus 28, verse 9, where the text says, You shall take two onyx stones and engrave them with the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining on the other stone, in the order of their birth, as a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. So basically, you had these 12 stones on this breast piece, and they reflected the priest's representation of the 12 tribes uh, of Israel. Very, very... Uh, uh, Beautiful. Uh, verse 31, if you look at this, see this blue uh, robe. This was actually called an ephod. It was kind of a, a hoodless or a, or a sleeveless robe that you would see right here. This comes from Exodus 28, verse 31, where the text says, you shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. And you look at this, and it really is stunningly beautiful. Um, I think particularly, remember, you have to give the context that everybody else is, you know, on this basically 40-year-long wilderness expedition, right? Like, what color are their clothes? It's probably the color of, like, mud, dirt, sand, blood. Um, it's not super attractive. And then all of a sudden, you have a guy rocking this sweet blue shade right here. And it's kind of like going camping with somebody, and then they're showing up with, like, a tuxedo or a, or a wedding dress. He'd be like, whoa, uh, that's not what we wear out in the wilderness. Yeah, exactly. There's a point behind it. They're supposed to stand out. Now, my favorite of all of this is right down here. Do you see that right there? Where that comes from is uh, <clears throat> verse 33 of Exodus 28. Uh, it says, On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Pomegranates were like woven uh, balls uh, around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the road. I love that detail. <laughs> Don't get it wrong. <laughs> we'll see why. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out. Why? So that he does not die. Okay, I'm going to follow this one, right? Like, wait, how many of those? 
Golden Bell pomegranate. Right, okay, Golden Bell pomegranate. Now, why? Uh, there was some element of, you know, like, a, again, this reflected the seriousness of what it meant to enter into the presence of the Lord. And there was a genuine and legitimate fear, and this actually happened, we referenced this last week, in the Old Testament, where people didn't rightly uh, enter into the presence of the Lord, and they got killed. They got killed. And so the bells, you have to remember this, you would, uh, you know, the priest would be on the outside of the tent of meeting, and then they would send in the high priest who would have this outfit uh, on, um, and you would lose visual contact, but then you could have, like, the audio, right? You could you lose the visual, but you have the audio where when Aaron's walking back there, I'd be like, jingle, 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 because you would be afraid, okay, is Aaron going to go back there and get killed? And you need some sort of, like, uh, uh, audio uh, reference to be able to know, is he alive or not? So, you know, be like, good luck. Karen, okay, jingle, 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 there he goes, okay, jingle, okay, I guess he's still alive, jingle, 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 oh my gosh, he's dead, jingle, jingle, oh, okay, no, no, he was just <laughs> stopping, he was like scratching his ankle, I don't know exactly what he was doing, but he's, he's okay, he's okay, and then you come back out, jingle, 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 and you would know that he's okay as well. Now, why, why all this detail, right, like why is this even in here? Well, commentators do a really good job of reflecting the fact that what's happening here in this moment is that the same way that these guys are supposed to dress is the same way that the tabernacle is supposed to be decorated in Exodus 26 and 27. Basically, these guys were walking around almost like mini tabernacles, um, where people would not only see the beauty of the tabernacle, but they would see the beauty of the priests overseeing the tabernacles as well. The implication of this is quite astounding, where God, through all of this, is starting to prepare the hearts of his people. He's starting to educate the hearts of his people. It's like, you know, he's starting with the basics. Like, if you're in kindergarten, you're hopefully starting to learn some element of basic arithmetic, so that there's a day in the future where maybe you can do uh, calculus, if you're particularly advanced. In the same way, God is establishing the basics for his people so that they might understand that the presence of God is not only meant to dwell in a tent, but he actually desires for his presence to dwell in and within a people, which would have been just completely revolutionary. It would have been very difficult for them to wrap their minds around to any degree, but he's just starting to sort of train their hearts and their minds uh, so that when Jesus came, a lot of what he would say would make a, a lot of sense. All right, secondly, you don't just have the, the the, the way to dress, but you have the cost of admission. And this is what Exodus 29 uh, is all about, where it talks about the sacrificial uh, system. Now, Exodus 29, uh, it, there's three different sacrifices that are instructed. So you first have uh, what's called uh, a sin offering. You would, you would offer a bull. Uh, this would uh, cleanse the priest from sin. You would have a ram for a burnt offering. That was meant for the priest to express devotion. And then it concludes with another ram for a wave offering, which we're not exactly sure what a wave offering was, but it was in some way a reflection of the priest's desire to enter into communion with God as well. Now, I'll just point your attention to the very first uh, in Exodus 29.10 of the sin offering and the bull. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the bull, and then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and you shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar." Now, this would have been a stunningly uh, grotesque, gruesome scene where you know, Aaron is putting his hand on the head of a bull. What did the bull do wrong? He didn't do anything wrong. Again, a bull's a big animal. It's well over 1,000 pounds, this huge, huge animal. And Aaron would have his hand on this bull's head, and before he could enter into the presence of the Lord of the tabernacle, he would slit the throat of that bull, of that bull and blood would go everywhere, and then Aaron could go in. Now, what in the world is going on here? 
Well, again, keep that sort of uh, elementary school idea where God is establishing very basic ideas in the hearts and the minds of his people where what's starting to be trained in the people of God is they might understand one it's not only a serious thing to come into the presence of the living God as we talked about last week but it's an incredibly serious thing to sin against the living God of this universe and every culture operates from a principle that there's a crime and there's a punishment and the punishment is meant to fit the crime and there's a sliding scale depending on the severity of the crime, the severity of the punishment. That's why there is not the same punishment if you happen to uh, bootleg a video off the internet uh, as opposed to if you murder somebody, right? Kind of, that's a good idea that the judicial system works that particular way. But what God is training in the hearts and minds of readers is that we might look at this and say the most serious crime committed in the entirety of the cosmos is sinning and rejecting the very God that gave us the breath that fills up our lungs. And because this is the most serious offense, the most serious punishment is deserved, that is not jail time, but actually death itself. That is the cost of sin, is that somebody must die. And yet, he's also making this very bizarre, startling uh, condition where, be like, wait a second, but, An animal that is innocent can take the guilt that I deserve. And the innocence that belonged to that animal can be placed on me so that I might enter into the presence of God as if I were innocent. He is starting to prepare the hearts and minds of his people to understand this concept of penal substitutionary atonement that will find its climax and clarity in the person and work of Jesus, which we'll talk about here very, very shortly. So, that hourglass... Kingdom of priests, kingdom with priests. But what happens is these priests uh, were never the end goal. We, we talked about this last week, right? Just like the model of a building is meant to point forward to the real thing, so too the priests are not bad in, un, in, in, in and, what, what am I trying to say? In and of themselves? Is that what I was trying to say? In of, yeah. Uh, yeah, what Ruth said. Um, they weren't bad. Um, <laughs> But they, but they were pointing forward to climax in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who's the true and better high priest. In fact, what happens if you read into the New Testament and you read the book of Hebrews in particular, the book of Hebrews, particularly the heart of the book of Hebrews, is all about how Jesus Christ is the true and better high priest. In fact, the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 9, Uh, He says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, what an interesting analogy or reference to the uh, tabernacle there, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The point that the author of Hebrews is making is that all these high priests, and the great tragedy of it all was the astounding way that the high priests started to believe that they were holy men because they happened to dress up like holy men. 
you know, that they believed, you know, and they were actually the ones who were behind the murder of Jesus. It's a reflection of the astounding wickedness and deceptiveness that self-righteousness, particularly religious self-righteousness, can produce in people. But it's like Jesus gets on the scene and it's like, bros, just because you happen to dress like you're holy doesn't mean that you're holy. In the same way that, like, this past week was Halloween and my daughter went as Wonder Woman, my youngest daughter went as Supergirl, I went as Batman because we had a Justice League theme going on. And just because I happen to dress like Batman doesn't mean that I'm Batman as much as I'd love to be Batman. Just because you dress like a holy man doesn't mean that you're holy. And Jesus Christ arrives on the scene as the true and better actual holy man because he doesn't have to put on himself some sort of robe or garment or jewels in order to reflect his significance. He doesn't have to put anything on because he is God and from him oozes from him. He produces the glory and the grandeur and the goodness of who God is so that people might look at him and they might see God in the flesh and see God's beauty and distinct glory. He doesn't have to put on an outfit. He's God. He produces the attributes of who God is. And in the same way, he does something better than the sacrificial system of slaying these bulls. In fact, the author of Hebrews elsewhere, he says later in Hebrews, uh, this is chapter 10, uh, verse 4, he says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, Jesus Christ, he came into the world. Why? Because all these things were simply meant to point and prepare the people for what was to come, that a true and better Passover lamb, a true and better lamb who was slain would be sacrificed in our place, and that we as the people of God might look back and see these priests with shaking, trembling hands on the head of an innocent bull, and to say, you know what, it almost seems unjust if it wasn't so gracious that this bull would die so that I might live, that this innocent animal might be killed so that I, who deserve to be killed, might enter into the presence of the creator that I have chosen to to, to completely reject, that we would look and we would not say that is some sort of bizarre, antiquated concept, but instead that was immediately, uh, that was only preparing us as the people of God to put our hands at the foot of the cross and say, God, do this for me. I know it's not fair that Jesus took all of the sin and the consequences for the sin that I deserved and that he would be crucified in my place and that he would gift me his righteousness. He would gift me his innocence. He would gift me his love. He would gift me the favor that he earned through his perfection, even though I'm imperfect, but I receive it. By grace through faith, I receive it. I want to enter into your presence. I don't want have confidence to enter into your presence because we long for that, don't we? We long to some degree to confidently believe that we have a relationship with God. Uh, Wherever we are on the spectrum of suffering, whether it's kind of something so inconsequential, not giving you a hard time, like you might have a test tomorrow and you're woefully unprepared and you get immediately spiritual and like, God, show me favor even though I don't deserve it and didn't like prepare well because I was binge watching Stranger Things and I should have been studying and said, God, bless me, take care of me, please watch over me, or something far more severe, like you just got a diagnosis or somebody you care about just had something happen to them, and it's like you're starting to wonder about death, right? Because it's not just sort of some sort of concept for people who are older and back, you know, in the future, but instead it's like something that you're actually wrestling with now, and you're starting to wrestle with the deeper issues of the soul, like when I die, will I go to the good place or the bad place for the rest of my days? 
Like we long for this relationship with God and what we're meant to do in the wake of the work of Christ as the true and better lamb who was slain is to not just say, well, I'll just toss positive vibes out the universe and hopefully God will throw something good back to me. But no, to stand firm on the firm foundation of a true objective historical reality of Jesus Christ killed in our place, the lamb who was slain, that we put our hand to the cross and say, we don't deserve this, but I'll receive this and I will enter into your presence, God confidently because of what you've done for me through the work of Jesus and I just I receive it I believe it it's it's mine now and it's what's interesting then okay kingdom of priests kingdom with priests the true high priest of Jesus and it goes back out to actually the people of God today being the kingdom of priests in fact what's really interesting is that Peter in first Peter you know what he describes the church as being a kingdom of priests isn't that interesting I at least wanted like a, huh, from you. God, like, isn't that interesting? Isn't that amazing? Like, it's so amazing. Like, what Peter's saying is the plan never changed. The people of God, the vision that God had for the people of God is still being realized, and he is transforming us and, using, and turning us into a kingdom of priests because we've received what was freely given to Jesus, and it's been given to us as well. It's like, it's amazing, like, what do we do in light of this? Actually, the author of Hebrews, like, tells us. We don't even have to come up with, like, three clever application points. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, he says there's three things, because we have a great high priest in Jesus who's transformed us into a kingdom of priests as the people of God. He says this. One, this is Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. One, let us hold fast our confession. I love this challenge from the author of Hebrews because we exist in this culture, we exist in this city where kind of the coolest thing you can do is to be like spiritual but not too spiritual, uh, like kind of religious but not like overboard and actually committed and like actually submit your entire life to this thing and it's really cool in Denver for you to kind of try to find yourself. A lot of people move here to find yourself and reject traditional religion, reject orthodoxy, kind of mature and be on the fringe and be different. Oh, by the way, the majority of Denver is actually like this so you're not that different. You're actually the majority and the weird people are the people that are holding on to orthodoxy. We're actually the rebels. (laughs) I know. And to say, I'm going to look to what my high priest has done for me, and I'm going to hold fast to my confession. And I am not going to reject orthodoxy. And I'm not just going to say, hey, I listened to this podcast. I went to this conference. I read this blog. Well, I didn't read the whole blog. I read part of the blog. And it radically changed everything that I believe. And you kind of want to sit at the cool table of Denver culture. And I get that and I understand that. But don't do that. Stand fast. Hold fast to your confession. And to look at Jesus Christ crucified in your place, this beautiful, objective, historical reality, and say, I'm not leaving that. I'm not leaving that, like that's for me and I'm not leaving that and, and, and I don't care what my circumstances, I don't care the cultural tide. I'm not gonna be so arrogant to believe that I've discovered something different about Christianity that like is actually radically different than what's been believed once and for all, handed down to the saints for the past two millennia. Secondly, we hold fast to our confession. Then verse 15, the, the uh, author says this, for we do not have a high priest was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so the amazing implication is that Jesus is not only the perfect high priest, but he's the perfect high priest who is able to identify and empathize with our weaknesses. Actually, the reason that Jesus is able to fully save is because he was willing to fully identify 
And these high priests in this line, they get super arrogant, and they're like, no, there's broken people, and there's good people, and I'm one of the good people, and you're one of the broken people, and stand far away. But Jesus Christ, he is the word, became flesh, and he tabernacled among us, didn't he? And the reason he did this, so many implications of this, but one of the most beautiful, so that he might perfectly, fully identify, be able to relate to the brokenness and difficulty and the suffering of the human experience. It's like, what do we long for when we suffer is somebody who can understand, right? That's why there's support groups. That's why there's, you know, the normal conversation to say, hey, I haven't been, what, been through what you went through, but you should talk to so-and-so. They've been through the exact same thing. They got the exact same diagnosis. The same thing happened to their mom. It's like there's, there's something, it's like a, a cold drink of water for a thirsty soul when you can meet somebody who can finally identify. And what Satan loves to have happen amongst his people is to separate them away from the fold and to make them believe they're the only ones and nobody can really understand. And you know what? In some ways, there's truth to that. Like, there's a lot of people in this room, thanks be to God, there's a lot of different experiences of suffering that I myself have not ever gone through, that none of our pastoral team, that none of our leadership team, that maybe even nobody in this entire church has gone through as well. But the good news of Jesus being the perfect high priest is that my job is not to perfectly relate and understand everything that everybody's ever gone through forever. But instead, my, I, I'm just like a signpost. I'm just pointing to the great high priest, and he is able to perfectly identify. He is able to perfectly empathize. And you are not alone. You're not alone. You have a great high priest who has been tempted, tried, suffered, as any of us have been and yet he was without sin. He was victorious. And consequently then, he can perfectly relate. He can perfectly draw near. He can perfectly blow up that lie that Satan would love for you to believe that you're all alone and nobody understands. And you might as well just separate yourself from this church altogether. You might as well separate yourself from the family of God altogether. You might as well just leave the faith altogether because nobody can understand. That is a lie from the pit of hell, and it's not true because Jesus Christ, he can perfectly identify, even though there's a million different things I can't perfectly identify with. Third, Let's hold fast our confession. He's able to perfectly empathize. Third, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, it's just so interesting. If you think anything like me, I'm like a very performance-driven person. Um, You know, I played sports growing up. You win, you lose. You're the master of your success. And if you lose, there's kind of no excuses. You just didn't work hard enough. Work harder and win next time. That makes pretty good athletes. It makes terrible Christians. And a lot of us, we kind of think this way in our time of need, right? Like some of you are going through a time of need right now. And what you think to yourself is, you know what? I'm kind of too messy. I'm too much of a burden. Um, I'm too far gone. Once I sort of clean up my act, once I get my act together, once I maybe don't have this total time of need, maybe I've done like 90% of the work and need a little bit of help, then I will uh, go to the people of God about it. Then I'll go to my pastors about it. Then I'll go even to God about it. In fact, what I see very frequently, a lot of times as a pastor, are people who are stuck in really egregious sins, 
And what happens is they have a time of victory and then they relapse. And when they relapse, they totally remove themselves from the people of God. And then we like, they disappear and we try to call and be like, hey, what is going on? Can you help me understand? And a lot of times what people come back with is, you know, that thing I was struggling with, I'm back in now as well. As a consequence then, I thought you wouldn't even want me around whatsoever. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like the gospel is not be perfect and then you can show up for church. The gospel is, actually, we're so broken, we need the Son of God himself to be killed so that we might be reconciled back to God. The reason we gather together in this room is not because we have our act together, but actually what makes us unique in this city is our confession collectively. We don't have our act together, and we're in desperate need of salvation. Not just religious improvement, not just a few rules, not just self-enlightenment, not just self-actualization. We need salvation. And what it means then is that do not believe the lie that because you're struggling, you should separate and segregate yourself away from God, from the people of God, from your pastors, but instead, because of your confidence of what Jesus Christ has done for you as your great high priest, that you would run into the throne room of grace. And it's just crazy to me because it's like I see these people and they relapse into sin and it's like, and they almost think they're being spiritual to say to things to me like, I'm not even going to church anymore and I'm not even reading my Bible and I'm not even praying. I'm going to get my act together before I even deserve to do that. That's not Christianity. You don't have to beat yourself up to enter into the presence of God again because Jesus Christ already received the blows you deserve for your sin once and for all. And he was put to death and he resurrected victorious and by grace through faith, his death is your death, his victory is your victory. And consequently, when you sin and relapse, you can say, that is not my identity, that's not who I am, but you can run back into the throne room of grace, not because you deserve it, but you never deserved it in the first place because Jesus Christ did what you could not do for yourself. And it's just like, I just sort of feel prompted by the Spirit that some of you need to hear that and to stop playing. I almost cuss, but that's not prompted by the Spirit. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah. You should just stop playing this ridiculous game where you're running from God. And you're running from the people of God. And, and some of you might even be emotionally there and you're doing that, you know, even though you're physically here every week. So that's what I want to say. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are and uh, your love for us and um, what you've done for us. And uh, we thank you for your gospel. And um, thank you for the people in this room. Um, I pray that they would know that they are loved, and most importantly, they are loved by you. And uh, God, please just give a clear vision more than anything else of um, the work that you did at the cross and how all of it was uh, being anticipated through uh, this bizarre priestly sacrificial system. Um, You didn't change the plan. This was the plan all along, and we're thankful for that, God. And so uh, please, uh, by the power of your Spirit, just help us believe what we're meant to believe. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.